There we go. Um, I'm going to be reading the Bible, so if you can open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh, Barnea, by the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and Edrei had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. At that time I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your number so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and all your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding and respected men from each of your tribes and I'll set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging, hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you and I'll hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. Your idea seemed good to me. So I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us up out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? 
Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the, the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephthunah. He will see it and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became, became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance, you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Let me pray and then we'll get looking at this passage. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do pray that you please help us to understand it and help me to speak clearly and seek to expound this big book of Deuteronomy, but also this wonderfully encouraging book. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we go through many transitions in life, but there are some major transitions which usually come with advice. I mean, hopefully it's loving and wise advice that's designed to help us through these transitions. I mean, did you have a parent or a youth group leader or a friend or two sit you down as you were making the transition into uni? Uh, some of you are nodding. Others of you are kind of rolling your eyes. I don't know what that's about, but anyway. Um, it usually, um, when you uh, go through a major transition, friends or someone will give you uh, advice. When you finish uni to go into the workforce, there's going to be lots of staff who are going to be itching to give you some advice as to what you should be doing. Uh, so come and seek us out. Uh, when you get married, I hope you seek out advice uh, from wiser, more experienced people uh, because there are some times when you need it in order to make the best decisions and to set yourself up for life uh, in the future. In Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are about to go through a major transition. They'll be leaving the wilderness behind and finally entering the land that God promised to give them. 
And we're told that they're camped on the plains of Moab, on the east side of the Jordan River, waiting to cross the river to finally enter this promised land. And on top of that, Moses, their leader for the past 40 years, who led them out of Egypt to where they are now, is about to die. They'll be entering a new land with a new leader. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives his final words to the Israelites in the face of this major transition. Really, the whole book is about this transition and Moses' advice uh, to them. Now, the word Deuteronomy in the Greek actually means second law. And in some sense, it does come across as Moses laying down for the law laying down the law for a second time to the people of Israel since it was 40 years ago that they heard it in the first place. God is about to deliver on his major promise uh, that he promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, some 400 years prior. Uh, And even as you read through Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, it's clear that God has kept his other promises uh, to Abraham to bless him, to make his name great, to make his descendants into a great nation. They are a great nation at this point. Moses has spelt that out. And God has blessed them. And as they're entering the promised land, Moses seems to be laying down the law of the land. Because it's clear throughout Deuteronomy that the law applies to the land that they're about to cross over into. This is the law very specific to the land. Which or immediately ought to tell you that we're going to have troubles trying to interpret this law for our current context uh, here in Australia because it's not designed uh, for us here in Australia specifically. It's specifically uh, for the, the land of Palestine. Now, lots of co- commentators have also noticed that Deuteronomy resembles ancient Near Eastern treaties or covenants that were uh, made by a superior king uh, with a lesser king, uh, the vassal. Uh, They're called uh, suzerain treaties, Um, and here we have it. Um, It'd be a bit like, I guess, the the great US of A making a treaty with Australia, the great with the lesser, and this is the kind of treaties that they would draw up on a regular uh, basis. The covenants have a fairly um, uh, typical structure uh, to them. They usually begin with a preamble, then there's a historical prologue. So if you look at... My, my left, your left, yep, the left-hand side. Um, uh, that spells out the history leading up to the treaty. They have general stipulations, the kind of nature that the, the relationship's going to hold between the two uh, kings or countries. Then they've got some really specific uh, stipulations of the nuts and bolts of the laws laid down. Then they call on divine witnesses to uh, testify to this uh, covenant and then followed by some blessings and curses, blessings for keeping the covenant Curses uh, for breaching. You can see that uh, Deuteronomy, which is on the right, kind of resembles that, except the last two are swapped around, the blessing and the curses and the witnesses. And it makes sense, um, since what we have in Deuteronomy is a relationship set up between the great king God and uh, the lesser uh, people of Israel. Now, the problem I have with treating uh, the book of Deuteronomy like an ancient Near Eastern treaty like this is that most of chapters 29 to 34, you'll see, don't actually fit into this context at all. They don't fit into the covenant formula, and so scholars can often say that they're unimportant. They're by way of uh, parenthesis or future additions that aren't really uh, that significant for the book. But as I've been wrestling with it, I want to suggest to you that those chapters are actually crucial 
to understanding the book and make a massive difference to the way that we understand what Moses is trying to do in this book um, of uh, Deuteronomy for the people of Israel and I think make a massive difference for us today as well. I've no problem comparing it with the ancient Near Eastern treaties and I think um, uh, there's some great value in that. But I think the best way to approach the book of Deuteronomy is the most natural way of reading uh, the book as a collection of sermons. Uh, Because what becomes obvious is that you you come across three major sermons uh, that are recorded for us here in the book of Deuteronomy. The first one being chapters 1 to 4 that we're going to be looking at today. The next one's a really long one that goes all the way to uh, chapter 28 chapter 5 all the way through to 28, and then there's another one in chapter 29 onwards, and then there's a few other shorter speeches uh, that are given later on. And what we see uh, in Deuteronomy is not so much that Moses is laying down the law, but more so we see Moses urging the people, like a pastor urges his congregation, pleading with the people to follow God, to love God as they should, and motivating them to do this. And um, all the while, it's clear that Moses, like a good pastor, knows his people and is realistic about their chances of doing it. Um, read their pessimistic, really, about that. They've got a chance in hell, really. But all the while, as you're going through it, you realise that he's very optimistic and hopefully in the God who has actually covenanted with them. Because what we need to remember is that the covenant that God made with Israel at Horeb uh, or Sinai, which is the other word for it, they'll use the words interchangeably, although for some reason in Deuteronomy he prefers the word Horeb. Um, That covenant that took place at Mount Sinai was like a marriage covenant. God had chosen Israel to be his bride. He had rescued them out of Egypt like a knight in shining armour. They were slaves in Egypt, remember, to the awful tyrants, the Egyptians. And God single-handedly took them out of Egypt from another and took them through the Red Sea uh, all the way to Mount Sinai uh, where he covenanted with them. In fact, it was like God proposed to them. He offered for him to be their God. And he asked them to be his people. And they said, we will. You get a very clear description of that in Exodus. And they accepted the terms of the covenant relationship as God laid down the law for them on Mount Sinai as he delivered the Ten Commandments. God and Israel, you see, in that wonderful ceremony, uh, were effectively married. But what's very clear in the earlier books as well as Deuteronomy, it wasn't one of those happily ever after marriages that you often come across in Disney. In fact, the relationship seems to go from bad to worse, almost from day dot. And so one of the big questions that comes up in the book of Deuteronomy is, can this covenant relationship between God and Israel actually work? Will it ever work? And if so, what will it take for it to work? Because it just seems to be going from bad to worse, as I've been saying. All right, now that's all by way of introduction to the book of Deuteronomy. So what I want to do now is quickly look at chapters 1 to 4 with you. So if you can open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and we'll quickly go through it. I'm going to go through chapter 1 and then quickly dash through chapters 2 to 3 and then spend a little bit more time on chapter 4 but not that much and then bring it home to us, okay? So don't get worried if I'm, you know, it's 5-2 and I've only got to the end of chapter 1. Um, <clears throat> 
All right, Deuteronomy begins with Moses delivering his first speech to the people of Israel. They're camped, like I said, by the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan uh, in the region, what we call the Arabah. And immediately in verse 2, we're told um, that to travel from Horeb, where they'd been camped with that wonderful marriage ceremony, um, uh, to travel from there to Kadesh Barnea, which is also on the edge of the Promised Land, takes 11 days. That's uh, somewhat of about 150 to 200 kilometres. But it only takes 11 days. But notice what it says immediately in verse 3. In the 40th year. That is, it's taken them 40 years to get to this point. An 11-day journey has taken 40 years. Now, that's slow going by anyone's imagination. Um, I think that's almost like a metre a day in order to get to the promised land. What has gone wrong? Why such a slow journey? So Moses takes them on a trip down uh, Menry Lane in order to get to the point. Um, There's two men in a bar. Uh, One man asks the other, how did your wife react the other night when you came home late? And the man answers him, she got hysterical. And he says to him, you mean hysterical? And he goes, no, I mean historical. She told me everything I ever did that was wrong in my life. (laughs) And Moses is kind of getting historical with the people of Israel here, not to rub their faces into it, but in the hope that they'll learn a big lesson. It is said that those who don't learn from history are in danger of repeating it. Uh, Steve Turner puts it like this, history repeats itself, it has to, nobody listens. So he says it again. History repeats itself, it has to, nobody listens. Are you listening? Moses is getting historical with the Israelites in the hope that they will listen because up till now they have made the same mistakes again and again and again in their history. And it's like history repeating itself again and again. And you get that feeling as you're going through from Exodus all the way through to Deuteronomy. He's hoping and he's urging that it's going to be different with this new generation, this next generation. And hoping and praying that it will be different for us as well. We should be praying that we too listen. So in verses 6 onwards, God instructs the Israelites to leave Mount Horeb or Sinai and go to the land that he promised to give them. Um, uh, um, And the first thing that you should notice there in verses 9 to 18 is that Moses tells them that you can't blame the system. What went wrong wasn't a failure of leadership. God had certainly blessed the Israelites so that they had become a great nation. That's what verses 9 to 10 bring to mind. They're too big for Moses to handle alone, so he sets up a system of leadership. And we read how he sets them up in groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, etc., etc. And they got involved in the whole process. They were the ones who chose the leaders. So they can't blame the system. They can't blame the leadership They really only had themselves to blame. And that's really what the rest of chapter 1 goes on to show. Once they got to the promised land, God tells them to go in and take possession of the land in verses 19 to 20. God is giving them the land. Just don't be afraid. Do it. But they ask in verse um, uh, 21 for spies to be sent in. And Moses agrees to the whole thing. So 12 spies go in to spy out the land. Uh, They come back and they come with a really good report. It's good land, just as God promised, but it's a lousy risk. 
The people were bigger and taller and stronger and their cities are impenetrable walls to the skies and they're even giants living in the land. That's what you're meant to understand when it comes to the words the Anakites. The Anakites were giants. Think of Goliath, uh, nine feet, ten feet tall. And so the people react in a very telling way. Let's have a look at verses 26 and 27 because this is really telling and speaks volumes about the relationship that they have with God. It says, verse 26, You were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us up out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Now, in case you're not familiar with it and you're into glamping and all that kind of stuff, tents have very thin walls. You don't go into a tent to have a private conversation because it's like the tent wall doesn't exist and everyone else around you can hear hear it. But I don't think that this is just describing the stupidity of the Israelites trying to have a private conversation when it really was public. No, rather this is giving us a window into the deep-seated cause of their rebellion time and time again in their history. Time and time again, Israel, not just the leadership because this is the point of them going to their tents, not just some of them, but virtually every individual in Israel was guilty of this, of totally underestimating the goodness of God. In fact, they completely distort who God is. Look at verse 27 again. The first words they speak are, the Lord hates us. But that's really strong language in anyone's. This, this is like not the kids saying, I hate you to their parents, but the kids saying to the parents, you hate me, which no parent would ever dream of, of, of saying or thinking. The very God who had single-handedly rescued them out of that superpower Egypt, who parted the Red Sea for them and then swallowed up the Egyptians so they would never be uh, threatened again by them again, Um, who spoke to them on the mountain, who married them effectively and then kept on looking after them day after day, providing them with food and water from virtually nothing. Every day they were in the desert, leading them with a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire uh, by night. And in his goodness, kept on forgiving their rebellion again and again and again. This is who they're ascribing hates them. And Moses reminds them of all these things in verses 30 to 31 and gives them another chance to get it right. God has taken you 95% of the way to the promised land. You only have 5% to go. And because God asked them to do something as trivial as fighting, promising that he would be with them, destroying the nations before them. They rebel. God has been so good to them, tenderly loved them like a father loves a son, Moses says to them, but they have the audacity to say that God hates them. And this is a major distortion of who God is and a major slur on God's reputation, on God's good character. 
But I think that this really gives us a window into all of our hearts because this is the reason I want to suggest to you that we all sin on a regular basis. And the reason we sin is because we have this distorted picture of God. We don't believe that he's all that good, that he doesn't have my best interest at hearts. And so in my tent, with thin walls, I ascribe malice to God. We have an, uh, uh, an image of God that turns him more from being a loving father into a monster who wants to deprive me of good things or take away what's good from me. We are all guilty of this idolatry, I want to suggest, because we sin. And this really emerges all the more like the Israelites when we're confronted with our fears. You see, when faced with the prospect of getting significant consequences for a decision I've made, even though I know God tells me to tell the truth and to trust him in that, what do I do? Out of fear and rebellion, I lie. Because I think the future will be better for me if I choose my way rather than trust God his way. In fact, I get the feeling that God doesn't want what's best for me. Because he would not have brought me to this situation. He would not have allowed me to face these consequences. So rather than just go his way, I'm going to choose my own destiny. Thank you very much. When faced with the prospect of... Um, of a fear of failure, I cheat. Faced with the fear of being alone or left behind, I choose a relationship that I know that God doesn't want me to have and onward and on it goes. Deep down, I don't believe that God is good, that he loves me and wants what's best for me. And the proof of the pudding in that belief is when I sin. This is a pathetic distortion of God when you think about all the good things that God has done for us. And I know this. Time and time again, I remind myself of the good things. That's why I go to church regularly. That's why I hang around Christians all the time regularly to remind myself of the good things that God has done for me again and again because deep down in my heart, I have this tendency to keep distorting God's image, God's good character again and again. Perhaps you're like that as well. According to verse 32, all this is a failure of trust, lack of faith. Like Romans 14.23 says, everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. And this leads to God's anger in verse 34 to 35, condemning that entire generation to die in the wilderness and never stepping foot into the promised land. And that is why an 11-day journey took 40 years until that generation died out. And on top of that, the Israelites uh, didn't take this punishment easily. Faced with the threat of going back into the wilderness and dying in the wilderness, they decide they would rather go into the promised land. Um, the chances of survival and the situation would be much better for them, they think, uh, going and taking the fight to the, the, the people of the land. But they horribly underestimated God before. They stupidly overestimate themselves now. It almost seems ridiculous uh, that they changed their minds so quickly um, from fear to, to bravery uh, at the wrong time. But if, if you're a seasoned sinner like me, you know that that kind of thinking is not unusual even uh, for yourself. But in verse 42, God warns them that they'll lose big time, and they did, and they were soundly beaten. And even though they wept before God, God would not listen to them and change his mind. 
So in verse 43, uh, what Moses is hoping for, for this current generation, 40 years on, is that history will not repeat itself. Have a look at 1 verse 43. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command. Don't do what your parents did. Moses is hoping that this time round, they'll not repeat that catastrophic mistake, but will listen to God, trust him, and obey him. Now, what we're going to quickly do is skim through chapters uh, 2 to 3, um, because in chapters 2 to 3, uh, Moses simply recounts the 40-year travel um, and then the last few months where they defeated the people of the, the nations around them. Um, and he, he explains some uh, various things there, but main, mainly to show that God is faithful, that God is sovereign, that God is able to defeat uh, all the, the, the people there. And then at the end of the, uh, the whole section, at the end of chapter 3, Moses um, even recounts that he himself failed to get into the land. Now, why does Moses tell us that? To make it clear that God doesn't muck around, or rather that we shouldn't trifle with God. When God speaks, we should trust, uh, we should listen, trust, and obey. So finally, uh, to chapter 4, and what I want to do is just quickly go through some points in chapter 4, because this, um, this passage is worth looking at in, in greater detail, and you're going to do that if you're a senior uh, in a senior small group, so I'm not going to go into great detail. Firstly, uh, what it says, there is nothing more important for the people of Israel than to listen and to follow uh, what God says, because Moses spells out that it's a matter of life and death, and so he pleads with them to carefully listen and observe all that God says. Secondly, the law that God gives is a wise and good law. People will see the wisdom of it if they lived it out. People oppose the law of Moses for all sorts of good reasons, but it's hard to be argued that it is the bedrock of our law even down to today. Lots of people throughout wisdom have seen the wisdom of the law of Moses and imitated it. It's head and shoulders above any ancient Near East law. Um, wish I could go into more detail about that, but... It's wise. Thirdly, in verses 9 to 24, Moses really tries to press home the point that God is to be experienced with the ears, not with the eyes. He's at pains to point out that Mount Sinai, that is what they experienced. It wasn't a visual form of God that they saw, but they heard his word. And that is to the way that they are to continue experiencing and continually worshipping God, not with visual imagery or idols or anything but with their ears as they listen to the word of God. We experience and worship with our ears, not our eyes. And that continues down to today. Fourthly, in verses 32 to 40, Moses urges the people to realise and remember the amazing and unique things that God has done for them. Now, the story of how God rescued Israel out of Egypt when they were so weak and Egypt was so strong is unique. The, the story of how he miraculously took them to Mount Sinai and spoke to them out of the fire there and provided for them and made a covenant with them, with the whole nation experiencing this, not just one man, is unique. I don't think there is any other religion where it's um, so many people are involved in the establishment of the religion, not just one man. That is one of the unique things about the God of the Bible. I hope you realise that. And that continues into the New Testament as we come to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are not simply depending on one man 
for the testimony about who God is and what he has done for us. It is massive what took place. It is unique and there is no other nation or other religion that can tell of anything like this that has happened in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Wish I had more time to talk about that. But fifthly, Moses wants the people to know that Yahweh, their God, is God and there is no other God. You may not like it, but that is the way it is. There is no other God. And therefore, you cannot make up your own image of God, he tells them. You can't create your own idols and you can't pick and choose what you want to hear and what you don't want to hear. If it, when it comes to God, there is no other God. God is God. And you need to listen to every word that he says. You need to trust him and you need to obey him. And brothers and sisters, that is exactly the same point that the writer of the Hebrews says that we are in when it comes to Hebrews chapter 4. We're in exactly the same place like Moses is talking to us beside the plain of Moab's except that we have had a far better word said to us, a far greater rescue in the rescue of Jesus dying on the cross and promising us a far better land as we're about to enter into it. But what do we need to do in Hebrews chapter 4? We need to, well, what does he say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like the Israelites did. We need to learn from their history. We need to listen to what God has said to us in Jesus. We need to trust and we need to obey and we need to be careful uh, to obey. Friends, there are a lot of competing voices um, out there uh, competing for our attention. Uh, there are other things out there that are trying to distract us away from following uh, the word of God and you know them. But it's not just the problem out there, it's also the problem within our own hearts where we find ourselves wanting to listen to those voices but we too like the people of Israel need to realize there is no other God the God who is there has spoken and what we need to do is listen to him trust him and obey